You know, our minds, they just work differently, don't they? Jose made the announcements this morning, and I just heard number two. And... But there's actually a point to all this. Think about this for a minute. The world has all sorts of religions, right? Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Catholicism, Mormonism, just to name a few. Why is it that some people believe one is right and some people believe the other is right? They can't all be right. I guess theoretically they could all be wrong, but they can't all be right. It's kind of funny. People say, oh, all of the religions teach the same thing. No, they don't. They teach things that are diametrically opposed. If they taught the same thing, it'd all be one religion. Simple case in point. Mormonism teaches there's a whole bunch of gods and that every human being, maybe every Mormon, can someday become a god. Our belief is there's one god and to believe in other gods is heresy and to worship other gods is a sin. That's not the same, even close to being the same. So all these religions are not the same. Now, if our minds all worked the same, we'd all choose one religion, wouldn't we? But we don't. And sometimes you got to wonder what's going through people's heads. I'm starting a, a mini-series, because, you know, I've been going through the Kings and the Prophets. I'm still looking at the Prophets. But I'm going to jump in and just start looking at Messianic prophecy for the next three weeks. Messianic prophecy are the types of prophecy in the Bible that deal with the coming of the Messiah. Extremely important for ancient Jewish people. How do you recognize the Messiah when he comes? There's all sorts of people who claim to be the Messiah. How do we know? And it's still important today for Jewish people to identify whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. And how about just for, for your run-of-the-mill Christian? What makes our book, our Bible, better than some other's holy book? I know we all think differently, but ours is the only book that is chock-filled with provable prophecy. In fact, the Bible's got so much awesome, clear prophecy in it that some liberal scholars, those are people who study the Bible but don't really believe its message, studied the Bible, read some of the things the prophet said, and decided that this stuff could not possibly have been written in ancient days, as it said, and they would add hundreds of years to the authors so that they could make it fit historically because there's no way they could have known all that before it happened, so it must have been written after. It had nothing to do with archaeological discovery. It just had to do with the fact that it was so accurate they couldn't believe it could be prophecy. Well, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of put the kibosh on a lot of that argument because everybody knows the Dead Sea Scrolls predate Jesus and they found almost the entire Bible in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Messianic prophecy talking about Jesus ruined that argument. So I'm going to talk to you about Messianic prophecy. Part of it, from my perspective, will intellectually prove Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and that the prophecies in the Bible are true. I like using the intellect. But we have a problem. Because you can't win somebody to God with your intellect. That's only a piece of the puzzle. People are intellectual, but we're also emotional. And a lot of us make our decisions based on emotions. You don't have to raise your, fan, your hands, but how many of you are 49er fans? Some of you online are going, I am, I am. <laughs> but why? Is it intellectual? Are they the best team? No. You get out the stats and you realize they're not even close to the best. 
but yet you're a 49ers fan. Got nothing to do with your intellect, does it? No. Maybe you were born in the town that they played. Maybe you watched them as a kid. Maybe you knew somebody who played on the team. And you don't care if they win or lose. You just love them. All right. All of life is this way. We don't always use our mind to make our decisions. We often use our emotions. I was born a Catholic. I'll die a Catholic. I was born a Muslim. I'll die a Muslim. I was born a Jew. I'll die a Jew. That's not intellectual. That's emotional. And it's driven by maybe our desire not to be ostracized from our own community. Boy, if I tell my Catholic mother that I'm going to a non-denominational church, she'll have a heart attack and die. I could never do that to her. My grandmother would turn over in her grave. That's not intellectual. That's emotional. So I'm going to share with you intellectual reasons for believing Jesus is the Messiah and the prophecy in the Bible is true. Because that's what I know how to do. I can share that with you. I don't know how to take your emotions and make your emotions line up with your mind. That's, that's up to you. You've got to use your mind to drive your decisions, not your emotions. Emotions are good, don't get me wrong. But they're only a piece. And then there's another piece. You've got your intellect, you've got your emotion, and you've got your will. You can believe all day long that Jesus is the Messiah, but choose not to follow him. You know, the demons know who God is, and yet they still chose to abandon him. There's all sorts of people out there who believe in God. You say, hey, do you believe in God? They'll say, yes. Go to church all the time? No. You read the Bible? No. You pray? No. You serve God? No. All right, so it's not an intellectual problem or an emotional problem. It's a will problem. They choose not to follow God that they do believe in. So I'm going to share with you only a little piece of the puzzle on helping people believe in God. Just a small piece. It's an important piece. But you have to know it's not the only piece. And when dealing with Jewish people, because in Messianic prophecy, I like to show Jewish people that Jesus fulfills the prophecies, therefore he's the Messiah, therefore you should follow him. Well, I might be able to get the intellectual piece down, but the emotional piece is hard. People have asked me, Steve, why don't Jews believe? That's, you know, do you realize how hard a question that is? How about if I ask, how come Gentiles don't believe? Well, they do. No, they don't. Most people don't follow Jesus, right? So what's the hang-up? What's the problem? I recently learned that there's somewhere between four and 5,000 synagogues, and there's somewhere around 400 Messianic synagogues. Just using those raw numbers, that's 10% of the Jewish people claiming to follow Jesus. I don't know that those numbers are straight up right. It's not scientific, but it's close. What percent of the Gentiles follow Jesus? Well, let me share with you a little bit about the Jewish hang-up. Then you can read your own history. Maybe you come from a Catholic background or a Mormon background or a Muslim background, and you can do your own like this. Jewish people go something like this. For the last 2,000 years, basically from 300 A.D. to 19... What, what year are we in? <laughs> Depending on what part of the world till today, other parts of the world maybe 50 to 100 years ago. So for roughly the last 2,000 years, the number one persecutor of Jewish people has been the Catholic Church. And where the Catholic Church didn't reign, it was the other church, like um, in Russia, the Orthodox Church. And in some other countries, maybe the Lutheran Church. So basically, from a Jewish perspective, Anti-Semitism is a Christian thing. 
Now, you happen to be a real, born-again, God-following Christian who loves the Lord, knows that Jesus is Jewish, and you want to tell a Jewish person to follow Jesus. But look at all the baggage. Your people have been killing my people in the name of Jesus for 2,000 years. You want me to believe in him? Get out of here. Well, if you thought it through, Jesus is Jewish, so anybody who claims to hate Jews in Jesus' name, that ain't working. And Jesus taught about love, not about hate, so that ain't working. But it's not intellectual. You see what I'm talking about? So this is a very complex process and project we're entering into. How to help somebody believe. Pray for them. Pray for them. You can't argue them into heaven because you can only help with the intellectual piece. And by all means, help with it. But the emotional piece and the volitional or the will piece, that's their piece. That's only they can handle that. So please pray for them. Well, as we get into prophecy, I got a video clip I want to show you. Let's take a look. There'll be a worldwide earthquake such as man has never seen. Destruction and death everywhere. They spent months warning the world of the apocalypse. On May 21st at 6 p.m., this man, Harold Camping, says worldwide destruction would begin. His message sent far and wide via broadcast from his small California studio. And predicting the end of the world didn't come cheap. Camping and his followers spent millions on advertising like the one on this billboard. There's just no reason in the world, no possibility that it will not happen. But 6 o'clock came and went. Although Iceland's most active volcano did start to erupt, there was no apocalypse. I looked at all the scientific data I could find, like carbon-14 dating or potassium-argon dating. The 89-year-old camping had said some 200 million people would be saved, and those left behind would slowly die until finally the globe is consumed by a fireball on October 21st. When they shall see the smoke of her burning. It's not the first time this retired civil engineer has predicted the world would end. He said the same thing would happen in 1994. He was wrong that time, he says, because of a mathematical error. Nicole Rether, The Associated Press. You would think this guy wouldn't have any followers. This is the second time he said Jesus would come back and the end of the world would come, and he missed it both times. The Watchtower, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they've said Jesus would come back on multiple occasions, they've missed it each time. It's not all intellectual. But let me tell you what the Bible says. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not play, take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So there are multiple ways of identifying a true prophet. By their fruits you shall know them, Jesus said. By their doctrine, it says elsewhere in Scripture. And by whether or not, if they talk about the future, if it actually happens. If it doesn't happen, you don't have to listen to them. That was Moses' warning. So, let's see what the Bible says about the coming of the Messiah and how accurate the prophecy is. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at when the Messiah would be born, where he would be born, how he would be born, what he would do, and how people would react to him. Very specific at times. For example, where the Messiah would be born. Micah chapter 5, this is what it says in verse 2. But you, 
Bethlehem Ephrata. Though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Micah says that the ruler of Israel will come from Bethlehem. You're thinking, well, that doesn't say the Messiah, Steve. No, it doesn't say the Messiah, but everybody knew it was the Messiah. Nobody debates that. Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus still wouldn't debate that this is referring to the Messiah. In fact, an ancient Jewish commentary called Targum Jonathan says this. A, a Targum, by the way, is when they would paraphrase the Bible and intersperse commentary with the paraphrase. And it was kind of like an official Jewish document of old days. This is what it says about that verse. It's translation. Out of you, Bethlehem, shall Messiah go forth before me to exercise dominion over Israel, whose name has been spoken from of old, from the day of eternity. So nobody argues they said the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. In fact, while I was preparing this message, it was so cool, there was archaeological news on Bethlehem. So, wow, what a coincidence. Yeah, but it's cool because they haven't had this kind of news in a couple of thousand years. Bethlehem is one of those places they don't have a lot of archaeological data on. So let me just read to you from the article. Bethlehem was the home of King David. That's where he came from. And here's what the article says about Bethlehem. Israeli archaeologists digging near the city of Jerusalem have discovered an ancient clay bulla. A bulla is just a seal. About 2,700 years old, bearing the name Bethlehem. The artifact is the only known ancient reference to the city of Jesus' birth found outside the Bible. Just this last week, well, actually it was May 23rd, they just found the first reference to Bethlehem, Jesus' birthplace outside of the Bible. A bulla is a piece of clay used to make an impression in wax sealing a document. The bulla was three lines of text. The first says, in the seventh. The second says, Bethlehem. And the third has the letter CH, which in Hebrew is pronounced ch, not ch. It's not Chanukah. And it's not Hanukkah. It's ch, Hanukkah. And that's the letter that they found, which is probably the last letter of Melech, the word for king. Same sound, different letter. It seems that, and I'm still reading the article, it seems that in the seventh year of the reign of a king, and it's unclear if the king referred to is Hezekiah, Manasseh, or Josiah. So they're saying it's around 2,700 years old by where they dug it up, and it's one of these three kings' reign. Well, these are the kings I'm talking about from Micah, who's talking about Bethlehem. Micah said Messiah would come from Bethlehem during the reign of one of these kings, which is pretty cool. A shipment was dispatched from Bethlehem to the king of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. This is the first time the name Bethlehem appears. I read that temple period, which proves that Bethlehem was indeed a city in the kingdom of Judah. You mean they doubted that? I guess they did. Why? Because they just don't trust the Bible until they take out a piece of junk from the earth that confirms the Bible's true. I could save them a lot of time. Just trust the Bible and then look it for junk to confirm that the junk's true. But they got it all backwards. So the Messiah was to be a descendant, a descendant of King David and come from David's hometown. I read you what the ancient scripture wrote. I read to you what an ancient paraphrase wrote. Now I'm going to read to you from another ancient Jewish document. 
This document also is close to 2,000 years old, and it also says that Bethlehem is the birthplace of the Messiah. Listen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, I'm reading from Matthew chapter 2, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then he quotes Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. So straight up, Jewish prophecy found in the Bible says, when the Messiah eventually comes, because Micah wrote around 700 B.C., when the Messiah eventually comes, he will be born in Bethlehem. So that means all these other phony messiahs, you could immediately take them off the list because they weren't born in Bethlehem. Hardly anybody's born in Bethlehem. In fact, I challenge you to come up with one name of any person born in Bethlehem in the last 2,000 years. How many of you can come up with one name? Jesus! That's it. Any other messianic pretenders out there? I can't think of a one. Well, so we narrow it down in the Bible to where the Messiah is going to be born. But the Bible does even better. It tells us when he'll arrive. You can get out a calculator and figure the date. So I'm in Daniel chapter 9. Check it out. Know and understand this, Daniel 9.25. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, Messiah, same word in the Hebrew, until the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. 62 sevens, seven sevens, kind of confusing, kind of weird. It's hard to understand. So what I'm going to do is give you a simple interpretation. Then I'll give you a complex interpretation. But before I even do that, why does prophecy sometimes have to be so confusing? Bethlehem was easy. This one's kind of weird. Some of it's even more confusing. In the coming weeks, I'll explain that to you. Prophecy sometimes is confusing, and there's a reason for it. But I'll explain that to you in coming weeks. For now, this is what it says. There will be a decree issued, and an X amount of time before the Messiah comes and dies, and then the temple will be destroyed. That's what it says. Okay? A decree will be issued to rebuild Jerusalem. The Messiah will come. He will die. He'll be cut off. And then the sanctuary will be destroyed. This I know. Nobody argues with this. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. When Micah wrote, the temple hadn't even been destroyed yet. So he prophesied of the destruction of the temple, the rebuilding of a temple, and then the destruction of that temple. Well, that temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So according to Daniel 9, the Messiah had to have come before 70 A.D. I challenge you to come up with one name. 
of anybody who claimed to be the Messiah before 70 A.D., born in Bethlehem. I'm telling you, the Bible just puts it out there. You don't get that in any of the other holy writings because only God can do it. And I know somebody saying, what about Nostradamus? Read it. Go ahead, tell me what you learned. Nothing. There will be great fire in the sky and war, war will consume the nations and the bright shining one will conquer. That helps. Give me a name and a date. Now we're talking, and that's what you get in the Bible. You remember earlier I told you they wanted to pump some of the prophets forward in time because their stuff was so accurate? Isaiah, there's a couple of prophets that actually give names of kings that weren't even born yet. They said, oh, there's no way this could be real. Oh, yeah, it's real. God can do that. Nobody else can do that, but God can do that. So you know the simple interpretation. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So we know the Messiah has to come and die before the sanctuary is destroyed. That happened in 70 AD. Now, I'm going to give you the more complex understanding of that passage. Some of you are really into numbers, and you have studied this out, and I have no doubt that you know it better than me. I'm okay with that. I barely understand it. But I want to give you what other scholars, other scholars, like I'm, I'm not a scholar, what the scholars have said. Other scholars, because these guys debate about the exact date and time. They're, uh, you're two weeks off, dude. Okay, whatever. That's way beyond my interest level. So I'm going to go with some of the most popular data that's out there that the guy who started the whole thing called Sir Robert Anderson in his book, The Coming Prince, kind of laid out for us. That's the standard by which others tweak. Let me read it to you again. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay, there's going to be a decree, and there's going to be seven sevens and 62 sevens. We're going to figure out what the decree means in just a moment, but let's talk about the sevens. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Seven sevens plus 62 sevens equals 69 sevens. I still don't know what the sevens are. I haven't told you yet, but we're just doing simple math. He says there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. 62 plus seven makes 69. I know there's going to be 69 sevens. I got that. Well, seven what? He's talking about a decree and time. So is it days, weeks, months, years, centuries? If you counted up days, you'd come up with nothing. If you came up with weeks, nothing. Months, nothing. Years, something. Something significant happened after 69 times 7 years, 7 sevens of years, which comes out to 483 years. 483 years after that decree, something phenomenal happened. What decree? Well, there's a few decrees given in the Bible about this, but this seems to be the most popular straight-up one, and it's mentioned a couple times in the Bible. And it's from the book of Nehemiah, which we were just in a few weeks ago. Here's what Nehemiah chapter 2 says. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, 
I took the wine, I, Nehemiah, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? You're not sick. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So I was scared. He was afraid. Nehemiah was afraid. I've told you in the past, you're not supposed to go into the king's presence with an attitude. And who knows, maybe he was afraid because he was going to tell the king. And you don't just, you know, don't mess with kings. They're dangerous. Just give them their wine and walk away. But he's about ready to mess with the king. I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. So the king said to me, What do you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven. You don't answer that question without a little prayer power behind you. King says, What do I want? Oh God, I'm going to tell the king. Speak through my lips. Give me favor. Give me mercy. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, well, how long will this journey take? When will you get back? It did please the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, and if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. I doubt very much Nehemiah had Daniel in his mind. I know he wanted his city rebuilt. He had an audience with the king, and he said, can I do this? The decree was given, and history even knows when this decree was given, 445 B.C. So we know that Artaxerxes gave permission to Nehemiah to rebuild 445 B.C. Well, I already gave you 69 times 7 from Daniel equals 483 years. So if you take the year 445 B.C. and add 483 years of the prophecy, that gives us the year 38 A.D. But that's only if you use our calendar. If you adjust it for the Jewish calendar, that puts you at right around 32 A.D. According to Sir Robert Anderson, He's calculated it to the very day that Jesus entered Jerusalem crying out, Hosanna, which means save us, and it was something they reserved for praying to the Messiah. So the prophecy said the Messiah would come and be cut off at this exact time, and the Scripture nailed it right on to the day of the Messiah's triumphal entry. Well, one of my hopes in sharing this, help you trust the Bible because the prophecy is amazing, to give you that intellectual peace to share with your friends. But I have a third hope in this series. You know, the Bible says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We need to minister to Jewish people and give them a reason for the hope that we have and share with them the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. So I want Jewish people to hear this and to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But a Jewish person would say, well, I understand that's your interpretation of it. What's the rabbinic interpretation? What did the rabbis say? So over these next three weeks, I'm going to give my interpretation, which isn't mine. It's, you know, believed by lots of people. But for a lot of these passages, I'm also going to tell you what the rabbis say about them. Because I'm not challenged by what they say about them. I think what they say about them just, it either agrees or disagrees and is so obviously wrong that I don't feel threatened by it. One of the most popular things stated about that passage of Scripture I just read to you is actually quoted from the Talmud. The Talmud addresses calculating the days of the Messiah. But you'll be surprised at what it says. Listen. Rabbi Samuel ben Nachmani said, in the name of Rabbi Jonathan, this is very typical Talmudic language, so-and-so said, this is the authority line of what I'm ready to share with you. That's where they got their authority from. Blasted be the bones of those who calculate the end. For they would say, since the predetermined time has arrived, and yet he has not come, he will never come. The Talmud says, there's a curse on anyone who studies the days of the coming of the Messiah. Because if they do it, they're going to realize the days have already passed, and they'll lose their faith because the Messiah hasn't come. Wow! They're right. The days have passed. But they're wrong. He has come. Since they exclude Jesus, obviously He hasn't come. You exclude the truth, what's left? So they would just as soon scare people away from researching this than them come up with the conclusion I came up with, Jesus is the Messiah. Blasted be the bones. You know what? You don't want to do something that the rabbi says is going to blast your bones. You might be scared to disobey that rabbi. Let me refer you back to the chief of all rabbis. Well, his number one disciple. Deuteronomy chapter 18, the words of Moses. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Dot, 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 that's prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not be afraid of him. You can blast my bones all day, I'm not concerned. Your blasting ain't got no power over me. Research it. Study it out. And come up to the conclusion that they came up with. The time of the Messiah has come and gone. That doesn't make me lose my faith. That gives me great faith. God fulfilled the promise. Jesus has come. He is the Messiah. I believe He's the Messiah. Do you? Would you please join me in prayer? Lord God, I understand there's the intellectual part, there's the emotional part, there's the will part. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters 
the Jewish ones and the non-Jewish ones that don't follow Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. You know what's going on in their heart. You know what they need. And I pray you would do it. And use us to share the good news of Jesus with as many people as possible to convince them that Messiah has come. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. You know, I have a tendency for the intellectual, and that's not always a good thing. Who cares if Messiah came? He came, he didn't come, who cares? Well, if you don't understand the significance of the coming of the Messiah, who cares who wins this argument? It's just an intellectual exercise. The reason a Messiah had to come, and we'll look at more of this in the next few weeks, is that there was a problem between humans and God a problem that we made. We separated ourselves from God and we burnt the bridge and we couldn't get back. The goal of the Messiah was to rebuild the bridge, to get us back in touch with God, to fix the problem. The problem that burnt the bridge is called sin. Sin separates us from God. Jesus, the Messiah, is the only being in the universe who's able to fix that problem. By being a human, he could die for our sins. By being God, he could make atonement for our sins. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. So my hope for you this morning isn't just intellectually that you'll come to the place where you think I might be right, but that you'll recognize there's a problem between you and God and that you want that problem fixed and that you'll come to Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sins, that you'll pledge to serve and follow and make God your Lord for the rest of your life. Amen.